This is Sean Lyle, and you are listening to Speaking of Young. Uh, you may notice, first of all, that I am not your normal host. Your, your normal host is Laura London. She is not hosting this episode because she is, in fact, the guest this week on Speaking of Young. Uh, Laura London, how are you? Hi, Sean. I'm doing great today. How are you? I'm doing very well. We're here to talk about your recent trip to Zurich. And yes. this is uh, relevant to your podcast because it was a very kind of young filled excursion. And I will start off by saying that I am not what anyone would call an expert in Jung. I, I don't really... Neither am I. Well, you do a podcast on Jung, so you at least, you've got some background. But uh, I'm, I, I'm interviewing the experts. I am no right. expert. Yeah. <laughs> You're an expert at interviewing the experts. Well, uh, and I, <laughs> starting, yeah. <laughs> and I have basically no background. Well, I'd like to thank you for, oh. for doing this. Absolutely. Why don't we start at the beginning here? So you, you went from Chicago to Zurich and... I mean, airports are nerve-wracking. Chicago, did you fly out of O'Hare? Yeah. Which is such an intimidating airport. Uh, you know, when I was a kid, my dad, I remember my father, he flew a lot um, for his work. I remember him telling me, this is when I was growing up in New Jersey, that Chicago O'Hare Airport was larger than the island of Manhattan. And he, he and my mom both grew up on Manhattan. And yeah, that was just, to me, I thought, are you that, that can't be real. That can't be true. I guess it is. I don't know if he was making it up, but uh, <laughs> it's enormous. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I mean, flying internationally and, and being in an airport that's that large and chaotic, I, I'm starting to get cold sweats just thinking about it. Yeah. But uh, tell me about your, let's start literally at the very beginning. Okay. I know a lot of travel stories don't start in the airport, but uh, but I think this one should. So, the, the, so tell yeah. me. Yeah, tell me a little bit about uh, uh, the beginning of your journey. Uh, a friend had said to me, a friend that I correspond with, who's in a training program to become a Jungian analyst, he said, you know, this was, ne this was never going to be an easy trip for you. And I thought, what? Why not? I'm going to Zurich. I kept that with me. And he had told me also before I had started the podcast, he said that this path is going to lead you into some very unpleasant places and you'll face many dragons. And if I didn't have those words with me, if I didn't take that to heart and keep that with me, I probably would have given up mm. because I thought this was going to be fun and easy mm. and it hasn't been. It's been really difficult. So mm. the trip started with a snowstorm. Oh, wow. But the day I left for Zurich was, I think, the only day that it snowed this season. Oh, wow. It snowed so much that, and I don't think people are going to believe me, but it's true. We sat on the plane for eight hours. Oh, my goodness. Before oh. taking off. And I had a friend said, well, I thought that they couldn't keep you on the plane that long. They can't keep you on the plane that long if the plane pulls away from the gate and sits out on the runway. That's not what we did. We boarded the plane and sat on the plane at the gate for eight oh. hours. You could get off the plane if you wanted, but you had uh -huh. to bring all of your stuff with you. So they kept thinking that they were going to open the runways in half an hour. And so I was getting these text alerts on my phone saying your new takeoff time is, and it was a half an hour from then. And so that did, it dragged on for eight hours. And- oh. Yeah, I missed my connection to Zurich. So oh. 
I was scheduled to fly from Chicago to Washington, D.C., change planes, and then fly from D.C. to Zurich. Well, by the time the plane in Chicago took off, I knew when we took off that I was going to miss that connection. And I thought mm. that that I would just automatically be put onto the next available flight. Mm. Um, so when I landed in Washington, D.C., I think it was about 10 o'clock that night, um, there was no ticket waiting for me. There were a lot of tickets waiting for other people, but there was no ticket waiting for me. And so I had to go see a ticket agent and I can't even believe this. There were no flights to Zurich until the next evening. Oh boy. Washington DC, that's a pretty big city. Right. And Zurich is huge financial capital in in Europe. Yeah. Why are there no flights from Washington, D.C. to Zurich? Right. It's interesting. So I had to spend the night in a hotel in Washington. They kept my bag. I didn't know that they did that. Oh. (laughs) I've been flying since I was five years old. I'm 50. This has never happened before. And, you know, it's not tragic. It's not a big deal. It kind of is a big deal, but... (laughs) Because what happened is I arrived in Zurich almost two days late. Oh, jeez. So, <laughs> so I'm I'm sorry to interrupt, but no, please. Already, you're two days late in Zurich. Yeah. You've spent two days really kind of. The thing about air travel is that it's it can be very dehumanizing. You know, you're you're in this tube with other people, closed off in the air, as much as the airlines do want to support you as a customer and and make you feel okay. There are so many delays that are out of anybody's control. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's so much going on as far as rules are concerned that, you know, and and literally the lines, you know, to get through security, the line to get into the airplane, it's just very, it's a lot of people being processed. Mm -hmm. And so not only being two days late to your destination, but kind of spending that extra time really being processed <laughs> rather than being a human being is, uh, it sounds terrifying to me. <laughs> when I left my house for the airport, I didn't feel ready. Murray Stein said to me when I interviewed him there in Zurich, he said, Zurich is like the Mecca for Jungians. Mm. And I was so, I don't know, kind of intimidated to go Mm. there. I felt that it wasn't really happening. I felt like I wasn't ready, even Mm. though I've been reading about it, uh, looking at pictures of it and talking to people who have visited there, talking to analysts who have trained there. I felt like it was just so out of my reach. I never thought I'd ever go there. Mm. So it was almost like my unconscious was involved with this delay Mm. and yeah and it stretched it out so that (laughs) i could process it and kind of separate from the ground from my home from everything that was familiar to me and go into what was really a great unknown right it's it's really funny how sometimes the universe kind of conspires to to confirm our our doubts, yeah, you know, exactly. uh, or or it decides it wants to put you through a test uh, before you can reach your ultimate goal. Mm-hmm. Um, sounds like I don't know. I of course we'll hear more about your actual 
time in Zurich, but it just feels to me like beginning a trip this way means that it will always feel like the trip was earned. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, yeah. All yeah. right, so you so you land in Zurich and you're you're 2 days later than you thought you were going to be. Yeah, and I I was supposed to get there on a Sunday morning and I had the whole day planned. And I didn't arrive until Monday afternoon. And my mm. first appointment was in a town called Einsiedeln. Apparently, I've been mispronouncing that. And on the mm-hmm. previous episode of the podcast, I was pronouncing it Einsiedeln. Mm. It's very awkward for me. It's Einsiedeln. It's about mm. 25 miles south of Zurich. And it's up in the mountains. It's the most picturesque place I've ever seen. But mm. anyway, so getting to Zurich on Monday afternoon the only way I was going to be able to make that appointment was if I had a private car service drive me mm. there. And that's the hotel arranged that for me. They did so much for me to help me. Oh, good. Yeah. The Park High at Zurich, highly recommend it. People there, the service was just outstanding. So I got in this car. It was like Chicago traffic. I thought, there's no way. There's no way I'm going to get there on time. And I had an appointment um, to see Robert Hinshaw at Diamond Verlog. And I knew that he only had so much time. Right. And so if I was late, what was I going to do? Spend 15 minutes with him, you know? So, yeah. but we got there on time. And I, ha- you know, it's funny. I, um, everybody that knows me knows that I only listen to Fleetwood Mac. <laughs> so, They've been on this world tour, and um, the very end of the tour, they did Australia and New Zealand, and I was watching clips on YouTube, and Stevie Nicks, she thanked their limo driver, and I think she dedicated Landslide to him, and I remember thinking, oh, wow. what? Your limo <laughs> driver? Really? <laughs> now I know how she feels, because I've never been to Switzerland. I didn't know where I was going. I didn't want to ride the train, um, which I was kind of forced to do but this car service this driver he he knew everything he knew how to get everywhere he could speak many languages he was so helpful and everything came together because of him that's great so we drove in the afternoon um it had snowed that morning and I, i just can't describe to you how bright and crisp and clear the light was, mm. it was like a postcard. The mountains had snow on them and there were these little Swiss houses and hmm. it was unbelievable. And so we got there and um, I met with the man who started Diamond Verlag Publishing Company. His name is Robert Hinshaw. He's an American, but he went to Zurich in the 70s and he attended the Jung Institute, which was in Zurich at the time. It has since moved to Kusnacht. And when he was in the training program, he worked at Spring Journal, which was owned by James Hillman. And he worked alongside Daryl Sharp. Oh, wow. Daryl Sharp, around the same time, started his inner city books. Robert Hinshaw started Diamond Verlag. He decided to stay in Switzerland is where I was Mm. going with that. He's American, (laughs) but he lives in Switzerland. And that was always kind of a fantasy of mine that that I would just move to Europe one day. (laughs) <laughs> because life is better there, right? Right, right. So that's what he did. And 
his office is in this 700-year-old building that looks out onto this huge, enormous monastery. It's a Benedictine monastery. It's home to the Black Madonna statue. His office window looks out onto the monastery. It frames it perfectly. So we're sitting and we're talking, and he didn't want to be interviewed for the podcast, but he was Mm -hmm. willing to talk with me for an hour or so, and great stories. And the whole time I kept interjecting saying, I, I wish I was recording this because the, I mean, this is priceless. He, yeah. uh, I don't want to, I, I guess it was a private conversation, so I need to respect that. But the stories he was telling me, uh, I wish I could talk about them, but I can't, <laughs> I can't. Uh, well, what, he, uh, what, do you, what do you feel was illuminated not not kind of in the uh, the literal sense but what what in your brain was lighting up at hearing these stories it was making it real for me these are real people that it, it isn't a name in a book or um, somebody in matter of heart these are real people mm. that i look up to that are my teachers that i learn from they're all gone. And he humanized them for me because mm. he knew them. Right. He knew Anila Jaffe. I'm so afraid to pronounce her name because I've heard <laughs> it pronounced so many different ways. Mm. She's the one that Memories, Dreams, Reflections, which is called Jung's autobiography. Jung spoke to her. She was his secretary for a time. She then later became an analyst herself. But mm. He spoke to her and she wrote everything down and that became, that was, he he did it for the book. He knew that she was making it into a book, but it says Memories, Dreams, Reflections by C.G. Jung, but it's really by Anila Yaffe. Mm. He has her publishing rights. So when she passed away, she gave him her publishing rights and wow. he was very close with her. He was also very close to Lillian Frey Roan, another Jungian analyst that's in the movie Matter of Heart. Hmm. So to hear somebody who knew these people that I've been reading about and reading their work and watching in the documentary for all these years was, you know, was mind-blowing, really. Yeah. I think there's always a part of our soul that is afraid of humanizing our heroes but there's also a part of our soul that can be very um lifted by knowing that our heroes were human yes and so being able to get that kind of perspective does sound really really uh, amazing i guess that's interesting that you mentioned that because one of the purposes of the podcast is to humanize these Jungian analysts that have written these books that nobody sees. We just know them by their books. Mm. And I wanted to, like I said, humanize them. These are yeah. people. They're they've have the same we all have the same struggles. Right. And they've maybe done more work around them and learn from them and want to share that with all of us. That's a huge reason why I do the podcast. So speaking with Robert Hinshaw was was pretty incredible. And 
everything, I was on such a tight schedule. I was actually scheduled to be in Zurich for only four days. And you lost two of those. Well, almost two. Yeah, I got there right. um, Monday afternoon and I was leaving. I was flying out on Thursday morning. So it got to the point where really all I cared about was keeping my appointments because right. I had appointments, appointments that I still don't know how I got. <laughs> Before I left his office, he handed me a book, one of the books that they published, called The Black Madonna of Ein Siedeln. It was written by an analyst here in the United States in Wisconsin that he went through the training program with mm. at the Jung Institute there in Zurich. And he said, here, take this book. Maybe you'll interview him someday. And that's the episode that I did last week. His name is Fred Gustafson. Oh, and, great. Yeah, that was his thesis. He did his thesis on the Black Madonna of Ein Siedeln. Oh. And you can listen to that. Uh, it's in episode 10. So, great. yeah. So I went across the street and went into the, it was dark out and um, there was still snow on the ground and the moon was huge. And I went into the monastery and there was a mass going on. And so the only, um, the only downside was that I was not allowed to take pictures because there was mass going on. Mm. So I didn't get to take picture of her. I, I did get to take pictures of the replica statue that's in a side room of, of the monastery. Mm. So this was your first kind of Jung-centric experience since landing in Zurich. Yeah. And it sounds like it was incredibly fulfilling and uh, sustaining the yeah, there are no words to describe how <laughs> how I would think. How did I get here? Yeah, I mean, I'm in Einsiedeln with Robert Hinshaw, and I'm going to see the Black Madonna. How did this happen? It yeah. just kind of happened. I can't explain to anybody. Just one person put me in touch with another, and put me in touch with another, and it just all came together. So it it was just it was contrasted with how difficult it was to get there. Yeah. Um, almost three days to get there, uh, coupled with how e everything was coming together. And these people were agreeing to meet with me. And yeah. just because we knew some of the same people. Right. So you got to, you got to really love those moments where you're rushing and anxious and nothing's going right. And then you somehow make it to the place you're supposed to be. And life kind of unfolds for you and stops in that moment, and you get to you get to experience things instead of being worried about them, instead of seeing them in the future. But you you have this experience that's so grounded in the present, with uh, with a contrast that the previous you know forty eight hours provides. Yeah, there was a huge contrast. I just think that's really cool. Yeah. I just I love that story. It reminded me of something that Christina Becker said in episode seven. She talked about um, this saying, the brighter the light, the bigger the shadow. Mm. And I kept that with me too, because I knew that these places I was going to, I mean, like Dr. Stein said, the Mecca for Jungians, that this was huge. And so there were going to be a lot of things trying to get in my way. That's yeah. just kind of the way it works. Right. The laws of physics. When something came up 
an obstacle came up, I'd say, okay, I know what this is, and just keep going. Um, I managed to get home on the train. I don't know how. It was very <laughs> dark, very cold. It was 21 degrees. Yeah. Um, got lost on the way back to Zurich. I didn't know I had to change trains. Mm. Um, yeah. I'm not very good at that. I'm I'm tired and I'm old and, <laughs> you know, I just kind of just, you know, just tell me where to go. You know, it wasn't <laughs> like that. I had to work for it. Right. Yeah. So the next day, um, my appointment wasn't until that afternoon. Uh, I'm sorry. Is this, uh, this is Wednesday now? No. So we're still on Monday. So oh, wow. I, yeah. Okay. So I arrived in Zurich. I landed in Zurich on Monday afternoon, checked into the hotel an hour later, got into a car and went to Einsiedeln. It took about an hour to get there. And I was there for several hours and didn't want to pay to have a driver drive back to Einsiedeln to, mm. to get me and then drive me back to Zurich. So I was told I could take the train. It would be easy. <laughs> I'm not a train girl. Sorry. <laughs> I'm just not. Even here in but Chicago, I don't take the train. I was going to say, Chicago has a very famous just, uh, train system. I know. I know. I'm just... Uh, that scene the, the in The Matrix, or? I just, you know, the train man, I can't. I can't get over <laughs> it. Um, when I go visit my mom, and she lives in Florida, and when you land at Orlando, you have to get on that train, you know, mm. to go to baggage claim. I just think about the train man the whole time. Oh, looks geez. exactly like it. You know which Matrix movie was that? The it was I think it was three revolutions. Probably. Yeah. yeah. So so we're on we're at Monday so, night. You have your next appointment is is tomorrow, which is Tuesday, Tuesday afternoon, right? Yeah. Tuesday afternoon at four o'clock. And since I missed Sunday, which was the day I was planning on going to Kusnacht and Bollingen, I had to that was the only time I could do it was gonna be Tuesday morning because Wednesday was interviews and then I was leaving Thursday morning. So what what are the, what's the significance of those two locations? Okay, so Kusnacht is where Jung lived. Okay. With his wife after he I don't know if he was still working at the Berg-Holsley clinic in Zurich when his wife was from a very wealthy family and they bought a piece of land on Lake Zurich in a suburb called Kusnacht. And I found out that Tina Turner lives there too. So we'll get to that. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, so they had bought this piece of land and built this house, big house, like big 20 room house. Mm. And he lived there for till he died. Okay. And so I wanted to see the house um, because I love the front doors. I have a thing going on with those front doors. And the Jung Institute had moved from Zurich to Kusnacht mm. at some point. And I wanted to visit the Jung Institute. And then I also heard that you could visit Jung's gravesite and the church where his funeral was was said. So mm. there were a number of things in Kusnacht that I wanted to do and got to do all of them. Again, this same driver picked me up and took me to Kusnacht. I can't remember how long of a drive it was, not too far. And I gave him the address of Jung's house because I don't think he had ever heard of Jung. Oh, interesting. So I gave him the address to Jung's house and it's on a very busy street called Seastrasse. And I mm. didn't know it was going to be a very busy street. I had looked at the house on Google Earth. 
So I had some idea of of what it looked like from the outside, but nothing prepared me for the impact. You know, different things have different meanings to different people. This happened to be probably the most impactful thing of the trip is mm. uh, we were on this busy street and he pulls over to the side of the road and I was probably looking at my phone the whole time. He pulls over to the side of the road and and indicated that we were there and I turned my head to the right and I'll put pictures on the website. There was no gate or fence around the 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 front entrance. There was around the property, but the front entrance was wide open. It's this long and narrow path, which is so symbolic to me, the mm. long and very narrow path to his front door. I couldn't, I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe I was seeing these doors that um that have so much meaning to me. And people were encouraging me before I left for the trip to try to get in wherever I could. And I was given, let me just say, Jung's grandson lives in the house now, that the house is still in the family. Oh, cool. And somebody had given me his phone number and I was not gonna call him and ask him if I could come over. Right. <laughs> I mean, and some people were really encouraging me to do that. Well, I just wasn't comfortable. Right. And I didn't, and I'm glad I didn't, and I didn't trespass either. When I was there taking pictures, now that's its own thing. I don't know if that's appropriate or not, but I wasn't going to go all that way and not take photos of the right. door or of the house. Um, some other people, tourists, some other fellow tourists pulled up in a car and were taking photos. That's how I knew there were tourists. And then <laughs> right. they started walking into the entryway to, to the long path toward the front door. And I just thought, you huh. know, I don't know. I, I, this is not trespassing. So I, the last thing I want to do is get arrested in a foreign country. Right. Um, right. So they eventually left and, um, I just kept taking pictures and, uh, went around to the side. There's construction going on on the side of the, property which was supposedly what i had heard it was it was a beach because it's right on the lake huh. and now they're building something there so it was a busy road and it was very cold out and it, that house is where he lived with his family he moved there after he got married all of his children his uh, five children grew up there and he died there and that's where he saw patients oh wow so the Jung Institute is also on the lake in Kusnacht, and it's. I'll also put photos of that on the website. It kind of looks like a farmhouse, and yeah. I was able to. Uh, it, beautiful grounds. Um, there, there was a couple there that was trying to get in, and we were all just kind of looking at the beautiful grounds, and the weather was beautiful that day, day too. Mm. We were all taking photos and. One of them went up to the door and knocked and somebody came to the door and opened it. So I followed them inside and it was somebody mm. that worked in the office. And so we just, we got to see the office and I took some of the literature that they had there and took some photos. I actually mm. did a live Periscope video just of the inside of the 
office and the outer hallway. Um, right. The library, I found out, is only open on Fridays, so I couldn't get into that. Mm-hmm. But it was um, pretty, pretty great that somebody else was there because I don't think I would have knocked on the door. It looked closed, and I knew that they weren't in session. Uh, mm-hmm. Somebody else was there, had the nerve to knock on the door, was let in, and I just followed them in. So <laughs> I was really fortunate for that. And also, my driver was able to get directions to uh, the graveyard because mm-hmm. I didn't know where that was. Rig- I didn't have that in my plans originally because I thought, I really don't want to see Jung's grave. I don't want to think mm-hmm. of him, you know. I don't want to think right. of him as dead. He's you're, so alive. You're on this this trip that is really humanizing him. And yeah. uh, it seems almost discordant to look at where he uh, he he no longer exists. Let's let me take a step back and I wanna I wanna hear how it felt to be in the Young Institute. It was a little weird, you know, because they had a split. The Jung Institute started off in this uh, old building in Zurich, which I did visit, and it's home today to the Psychological Club. Now, I've seen it written as the Psychology Club, and I've also seen it written as the Psychological Club. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure which is correct, uh, probably both. Mm -hmm. The Jung Institute was there um, when some of the people that I know attended and then it moved to Kusnacht, and at some point it split, and a group went off and started their own, the Centrum. Mm-hmm. So when I was at the Jung Institute in Kusnacht, I wasn't feeling that sense of history, I think, that the one in Zurich had. It was kind of dark in there, and there was not a lot going on, and mm-hmm. there weren't things hanging on the wall. and. I didn't feel Jung as much there. Mm, okay. So my driver got directions on how to get to the graveyard because it's on the grounds of the church, the Swiss Reformed Church, um, where his funeral mass was held. Mm-hmm. So we got to the graveyard, and I don't know why the driver got out with me. I was thinking about that. That's really interesting. He mm. got out, he got out of the car with me and we walked into the graveyard and it wasn't huge but it wasn't tiny either and I thought well, it'd be easy to find his gravestone. Yeah. Now I had not done any research like I said I wasn't really planning on doing this. I hadn't done any research on lo- looking for photos of it to so that I knew what to look for. Right, right. I had no idea. I thought that I had seen a picture of it where it was uh, a square stone in the ground. Mm-hmm. For some reason, I must be mixing that up with something else, but that's what I was looking for. And I also knew that Marie-Louise von Franz was buried in the same graveyard. So I was keeping my eye open for that as well. My driver and I split up to try to save time because we couldn't find his gravesite. Mm-hmm. Neither of us could find it, so we decided to go into the church to ask to see if there was somebody in there. And I again, I took a video inside the church, rightly or wrongly. I don't know if it was okay or not. There was not a soul in there. Oh, wow. And I stood on the altar, um, these gorgeous... It was very kind of, you know, I'm, I was raised Catholic, and I love going to old churches, and this was not at all like... 
the ornate churches in Rome that I went to Rome after Zurich that that I'm used to seeing, it was very, very sparse. Mm. It was very bare. But up at the altar, there was a triptych of blue stained glass windows that I took photos of that are really quite something. Mm. Um, so there was nobody around. There was nobody. The office was closed. There was nobody to ask. Wow. So we went back because the car was on the other side of the graveyard, and I, I noticed that my driver was um, – he was kind of making a beeline for the car, and I thought, I am not leaving here <laughs> without finding that gravestone. Yeah. Um, so I said to him, you know, I, I just, I'd like to give it another try. He's like, sure, sure, sure. So we were looking, and what I realized is I was kind of expecting there to be a neon sign, you know, saying yeah. C.G. Jung. On the, right. right. It wasn't like that at all. So... Out of nowhere, a tall, thin, young man appears, out of nowhere, wearing overalls and carrying a pickaxe. Now, I don't know that I've ever seen a pickaxe up close, but this was yeah. like, looked like a medieval weapon. <laughs> right. I don't know. He had this twinkle in his eye. So they spoke and, do you know where this is? Yeah, sure. Come on over. Oh, wow. Smiling the whole time. And um, he took us over, and I passed in front of that stone several times. I didn't notice. It's very, Again, I have pictures. I'll post the pictures. It's very old. It's uh, like a big rectangle. It's standing up, and it's for the entire Jung family. So, huh. yeah, the whole gravestone is um, covered in names. It starts with Jung's father, Jung's mother his sister, then Jung's wife, Emma, then Jung. I'm trying to look at the order here. I have it written down. Um, and then his daughter, Lily, who died in 1983, and his son, Franz, who died in 96. And hmm. that's the bottom. There's no more room. There's an inscription on the stone that says, in Latin, it says, called or not called, God will be present. Hmm. And then along the sides... It says, it's a quote from St. Paul that says, the first man was of the earth, earthly, the second man from heaven, heavenly. But I wasn't expecting this. I wasn't expecting the entire family to be buried on this plot. Right. Yeah, that, that's interesting to me. How do, you, how do you feel personally, you know, with the relationship that you have with Jung and his teachings, how do you feel about this man sharing a plot, I guess? Yeah. I think it fits. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think that he wanted to be singled out or put on a pedestal. Um, it made sense to me after I s stood there for a while. It yeah. it made a lot of sense to me. And um, I, I had heard how close he was with his wife and and his, his whole family. And so his name is just one of the names on there. So I, I was glad I saw it. I, the sun was shining. I, I have this thing where I take photos and the sun does some really brilliant things. Mm. Um, so the sun was coming in like from the upper left and it was the rays of the sun were literally making a streak across the photo. 
It's mm. pretty cool. And the ground had frost on it and the flowers that were there had been frozen and they were kind of wilted and um it was not at all what I expected and Sounds amazing. Yeah, it was quite it was quite moving really. Um and then I had asked about von Franz's grave and I knew that she shares a grave with Barbara Hannah who was also a pupil of Jung's and a Jungian analyst. And late in life, later in life, uh, Jung suggested that they live together and kind of, mm. I guess, take care of each other. And they did. And I was told that it was difficult for them because these two strong, independent women were used to living by themselves. And then all of a sudden, you know what it's like to to have to share your personal space with somebody. Mm. And so they, um, I guess they got into it a lot, but they worked it out. And <laughs> now they're, they're buried in the same plot and they, they share, right. um, yeah, the same grave and both of their names are on this gravestone. I have photos of that as well. And, um, that was really moving to me too, because I thought these two women, all the work that they did and they shared it with us and they've helped a tremendous amount of people. And I just wanted to thank them. It just sounds amazing to, to be able to kind of commune with a spot. Um, even if there aren't people there to, to commune with, that's really great. Yeah. Um, but I know you had, uh, you had an, another appointment to keep right kind of in the afternoon. Yeah. So then, uh, I left Kusnacht and went back to Zurich and, went to the psychology club, the psychological club, the psychology club, hmm. um, there in Zurich, in that building where uh, Jung had his office. That was the original C.G. Jung Institute, but he, the, the psychology club was founded in 1916. It wasn't there in 1916. It was in another place. I think uh, Edith Rockefeller McCormick funded it. And then eventually, I think just a few years later, they were able to purchase that building. Uh, it's really beautiful. I have photos of that and some video of it as well. So that's where some of the older analysts that I know, where they did their training. And um, I met with the president of the psychology club and had a private meeting with him. Saw some Things in there that just blew me away. There's a huge portrait of Tony Wolf, who was Jung's. She was an analyst herself, but she was also Jung's companion. Even mm. though he was married, she was like a second wife, and she introduced him to a lot of um, the concepts, uh, Eastern religions, and alchemy, and. She was the president of the psychology club for over 20 years. Mm. And it was really wonderful to see her recognized in that way. I wasn't expecting it mm. um, because she's a little bit, in some ways, she's a little bit of a controversial figure. Right. Um, and after that meeting, um, I actually had dinner with a Twitter friend who lives in Zurich. Oh, cool. So it was really nice to meet up with somebody that, that I'd connected with on Twitter and we had dinner and then we went back to the psychology club and met with Robert Hinshaw again, the analyst in Einsiedeln. He also has an office in that building on the, t the top floor, no elevators in these places, all stairs, <laughs> and met with him, had another 
nice long talk with him, which was wonderful. The next day, I had two interviews for the podcast. One was with Murray Stein, and the other one was with Dr. Barbara Davies. Dr. Stein, um, all of that is in a blog post that I wrote, and he's episode number nine. That was a whole story in itself, just getting there, Mm -hmm. just one obstacle after another, getting to his office. I had to be there by 10 o'clock. And the cab driver went on this really narrow road. There was a delivery vehicle in front of us that stopped. The driver Mm -hmm. shut the truck off, got out. There was no way around him and we couldn't back up. Um, And so the cab driver got out of the car, started yelling at this guy. They're yelling, they're screaming. And, you know, yeah. you know, it was very tense in Europe right. um, the time that I went um, because of what had happened in Paris. And there was just this, sure. yeah, there was a, a lot of tension in the air, a lot of nervousness, and um, everybody was just kind of on guard. I could feel mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Um, and so the cab driver got back in the car. We sat there and waited. And I'm thinking, you know, Murray Stein, he gave me one of his analytic hours. So I knew I only had 50 minutes and mm-hmm. I didn't want to be late. Next thing I know, the delivery driver goes into a cafe to get a cup of coffee. <laughs> so we're at a standstill. I'm in the cab. The cab driver is losing it. And I didn't <laughs> want, you know, just everybody take it easy. So, yeah. um, I, I couldn't believe it was happening. It just brought me back to Monday sitting on that plane, not right. being able to move and knowing that just I didn't want to miss any appointments. So eventually the delivery truck moved and the building that Murray Stein is in is kind of it's kind of hidden. It's not easy to see the front of. And he said he'd meet me outside and um, we weren't sure exactly where it was. And so... I got out of the cab and I ran mm. and found him. And anyway, so I have photos of the building that he's in, of him, his office, and I have that interview all up on the website. Um, and then it was back to the hotel for an interview with Dr. Barbara Davies, who she didn't receive formal training. It's very interesting. Mm. She didn't go to the Jung Institute in Zurich. She didn't go to any of the formal training programs, she received her training directly from Marie-Louise von Franz, Hmm. which back when Jung was becoming Jung, right? Mm -hmm. And he had all these pupils and there were no training programs. There was no Jung Institute. That's how people became analysts is he, Mm -hmm. they would have an analysis. So they were in analysis with Jung and he would tell them to either, you know, go get your medical degree or you're ready now, you're now an analyst. And mm. that's how people became analysts. And that's how she became an analyst is that she worked for Marie-Louise von Franz. And now you have to have a postgraduate degree in order to become a Jungian analyst. So she went and got her PhD in clinical psychology, and then mm. she was able to become an analyst. And um we had a very interesting conversation, and I haven't heard back from her yet, so I haven't uh, posted that interview. Um, I need to wait to hear from her and mm-hmm. and make sure that it's okay. So that was it. That was the end of Wednesday, and then I flew to Rome the next morning. 
<laughs> for another something else that that I wanted to do uh, some research at the Vatican Museum. So, um, so tell me tell me yeah. how it felt to leave the hotel and, and uh, you know get to the airport, get on the plane, realize that you're leaving Zurich. Yeah. Um, what was going through your mind? It, that it all happened so fast. It went yeah. by so fast. I didn't want to leave. The hotel was just magnificent. It was so luxurious. I, I knew it was going to be a different story in Rome, and it was. Uh, but um, it just, it all went by so fast. And yeah. the only thing that I didn't get to do that I I did plan on doing was to go to Bollingen, which was Jung's uh, lake retreat. Mm -hmm. in this teeny tiny town. I didn't even know how to get there, but I figured that once I was in Zurich, I'd be able to find somebody who would tell me there was just no time to get there. And I knew that I wasn't going to be able to get in. I had written and asked for permission to get in and was mm -hmm. denied. Um, I was offered to go back in February um, to be oh. part of a group yeah, that's going to visit. No, no electricity or running water there, and oh, wow. that's the the famous tower at Bollingen on Lake Zurich of Jung's, where he carved the all of that stone, the big square stone. So, I don't think I'll be going back in the winter. I don't know if I'll ever go back. Really, mm -hmm. it was the cultural difference. I call it the culture clash. Mm -hmm. Was. You know, I've always been very introverted. I was mm. extremely shy when I was young. Um, growing up, I didn't like having my picture taken. I just had a few close friends. I was never a group person. And only recently did I start becoming more extroverted. And I really clash with the Swiss culture, I, mm. which is very deeply introverted in general. And I, I was told, uh, Tom Lavin said this, he's a Jungian analyst here in Chicago, and he trained in Zurich. And he said, the Swiss are like porcupines. Hmm. You know, they're okay until you get too close. And then the spikes come out. Um, I, don't, I don't mean to be disrespectful in any way, but they are, in general, private people. And mm. we're not like that here. We want to talk about things and share things and take selfies and post pictures. <laughs> and yeah, that just wasn't going to fly with them. So because of this, I don't know if it's a phase that I'm in or I, I don't think it is. I think that I've, you know, I when I interviewed Daryl Sharp, he said that he was pretty extroverted um, when he was growing up. And now he's very introverted. And right. I feel like, yeah, I'm kind of the opposite where I'm taking selfies, I'm posting selfies and and I'm I have this podcast now. I never yeah. thought that this wasn't anything that I would ever feel comfortable doing. So the trip was I think I had described this on Twitter, it was uncomfortable for me. Mm. Um it was I had to I felt like I had to be so careful right. and that I was this I don't know um it, I, I'm not in that space anymore. I'm not in that quiet and imploded place. I'm not there anymore. Right. And so, uh, yeah, it reminded me of that and it showed me that. And I thought, you know, I'm, I'm exploring this other side of me now. And they're not, and they're not interested in that. And they want to keep the container. They want to keep these things contained, which just kind of reminds me of the Red Book that was published in 2009, Jung's 
pretty much his, you know, his private journal, his encounter with the unconscious and the back and forth that they went through as to whether or not to publish it. I can't imagine how that must feel to go to a place that really represents somebody who has opened you up in terms of your personality or emotions, the way that you think about things, the way that you live life, mm-hmm. and to go to that place and find that that it's almost the exact opposite culturally, right? Like Jung to you sounds very much like he represents an openness and an opening of yourself and to go there and to find that culturally it's so very closed off. How does that feel? Does it feel like like a betrayal? Um, uh, does it feel like it fits with what you know or, or how, how yeah, does that feel? It does. It does feel like it fits with what I know because the process, the individuation process that one goes through in analysis is something that you go through alone. And people talk about how it's a lonely process. And it did feel really lonely for a really long time. Mm. That was necessary. I had to go within. I had to find out what was going on inside me. I had to separate from the collective, Mm -hmm. from my family, from you know, that whole group thinking and hive mind and everybody just kind of does what everybody else is doing. I had to separate from that and find out Mm -hmm. who I was and how I felt about things and what I thought of things. In, In the psychology club, there's a photo of Jung in the main hallway. And it supposedly was a famous photographer. I think his name is Yusuf Karsh. Mm-hmm. He's a Canadian, um, born in Turkish Armenia. And it's dated 1958. It's a photo of Jung with his eyes closed and his glasses just kind of propped up above his eyes. Mm-hmm. And when the photo was described to me, um, he said, you know, that Jung's eyes being closed kind of opens up a whole new world. Mm-hmm. And I, I I can respect them wanting to keep things private because there's this fear of being misunderstood. I don't have that as much anymore. It, it doesn't matter to me. Uh, the people that are close to me, their opinions matter. I mean, the people that are really close to me, mm-hmm. the few people, their opinions matter. But anybody else, why would their opinion of me matter to me. So right. if they're going to be critical of, and why wouldn't they, you know, <laughs> do things a little differently than them, then yeah, they're well, going to be critical and that's fine. I don't care. That's what the individuation process is for. I don't need their approval. Mm-hmm. Everybody's going to have their own way of thinking and doing, and that's what's right for them. Yeah. All I can do is what's right for me. And of right. course, there's going to be people that don't like it. I mean, as if they're even paying attention. And my <laughs> analysts used to say, you know, you you care so much about what other people think until you realize that they don't. They're right. just, they're too busy caring about what they're doing. They, exactly. don't, they don't care what you're doing. Yeah. And if somebody does care what I'm doing, then, uh, you know, that's that's their problem. That's their thing. Like this podcast, I've had some people 
uh, recommend to me people to interview or you should do it this way. You should take comments. You should take, no, this is, (laughs) this is my painting. I'm going to paint my painting and Mm -hmm. you guys can look at my painting and enjoy my painting if you want. And if you don't, that's fine too. But I need to do this my way. I need to Mm -hmm. put my own thumbprint on this. Right. You know what I mean? Well, I think a lot of people don't realize that when you start creating something, a lot of what's special about it comes from the fact that you become insular and create rather than, rather than being, you know, open to the world. Yeah. And I don't mean being open as in like being honest. I mean being open as in walking naked into Times yeah. Square. Yeah. That's not that's not the kind of openness that you that that breeds artistic endeavor usually. You need to feel safe and you need to feel like you're communicating your perception. So I think that's definitely very valid. Uh let's wrap up with this. Um I think any time that we go to, as you said, a, a mecca of some kind, mm-hmm. we have these expectations. We have what happens while we're there. We have what we look back on it as. Um, just briefly, give me give me those three things. Um, and and did they look the same, or did they look different? Uh, how did everything end up for you? Look completely different. Um, felt completely different. Nothing could have prepared me for that. I kind of get wrapped up in how hard it was to get there and why was it so difficult. I, Like I said, I've been traveling since I was five years old and I, I'm not one of those people that has all these travel glitches or these stories about... Traveling has usually been pretty smooth for me and this was the first time this kind of thing had happened. So it was hung up on why, you know, I do that. Why did yeah. that happen? Why did I lose that time? Was I supposed to miss something? And uh, what was getting in my way? Was it because I was talking about it too much? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was thinking about that and thinking about, have I missed something? Have I disappointed anybody? So it was what it was. And it happened the way it happened, and it couldn't have happened any other way. And I got out of it in one piece, um, which was important. Two, I had a lot of people helping me. I had a lot of help. And I'm very deeply appreciative to everybody and to you, Sean. um, Sure. I'm happy to be here for you. Thank you. Really appreciate it. So, yeah, I, I couldn't have done this alone. It was a lot of people helped me out. That's awesome. Let me ask you, this is just kind of a last question. Yeah. Even though you've kind of nicely wrapped up, I'm just going to step on that. Was there a time or maybe multiple times, like for instance, at the monastery or at the gravesite, Mm -hmm. where you, where you forgot that you were you, that you're able to kind of get out of your head and experience what was going on? It was kind of a working trip in a way. Um, it wasn't, yeah. I couldn't just be the tourist. I had these interviews planned and um, it was a little bit of a, it felt like a little bit of a business trip. In fact, I was given an upgrade. I was, uh, I flew mm-hmm. business class 
there and I flew business class home. And um, that's pretty fitting. It kind of <laughs> fits the symbolism. While you're describing some of your experiences to me, mm-hmm. it sounded like the kind of description that could only happen if someone got out of their own head. So, you know, and I did, I did want to add this too. Um, now that we're, you know, it, it takes a while to start really opening up and getting real. Honestly, yeah. I really didn't feel young there. You know why? Mm-hmm. Because I don't think it looked, I don't think Zurich is today, obviously, what it was when he was there. He was born mm-hmm. in 1875 and he died in 1961. All of Europe, well, the places I've been, have become so westernized. And even, I, I have friends in other parts of the world, even the monks in India, you know, they're, there's this big Coca-Cola sign at the monastery, the the mm-hmm. Tibetans in exile in South India. They, mm-hmm. I'm still in touch with them. They send me pictures all the time and, mm-hmm. you know, they're drinking Coca-Cola. Yeah. He, he makes noodle soup on the floor in his room, but he's drinking Coca-Cola. <laughs> right. So um, I, I don't think it looked the same as when Jung was there. And I, I just think that it's just become so, I guess westernized is not the right word. It's just become so modernized mm-hmm. and um, that it wasn't like you had asked me earlier, did it look the way you thought it was going to look something like that? And um no, it didn't. The photos that I've seen, they're mostly all in black and white. I think they're all in black and white. Everything just looked so so kind of formal, you know, especially the way people dressed. Yeah. Everybody was in suits and dresses and and uh, we're not. I'm not. Um, so uh, I wasn't really feeling him. I think that brings up a really interesting question about what we hope to gain by visiting the yeah. places where our hero's energy is or was. Um, yeah, I wanted to see what he saw. And then I, I guess the interesting question to me is whether or not that's even possible, even if even if you're a contemporary, you know? Like, I'm not sure that the human experience works that way necessarily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really got that. I really did, that uh, I wasn't feeling it, and so... Um, it's fascinating to hear you kind of working out the, cause you've been on the trip and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sure you've thought about it since you've been back. Yeah. Um, but really kind of thinking about it, analyzing it or, or not analyzing, but just kind of reducing it down to the abstract qualities of feeling and emotion. Um, it's just sometimes I think a trip like that, sometimes I think the shadow or the echo of the trip is more important than the trip itself, if that makes sense. And and we were speaking earlier about humanizing the analysts, but what if this humanized Jung to me and um, that he was a doctor, he was working and he was working this stuff out and he lived in a house just like everybody else does. (laughs) And he worked in an office. That's another thing when I was at the psychology club the original Jung Institute building in Zurich, I got to visit his office and spend some time in Jung's old office there. Um, and I felt what it was today. I really didn't feel him, mm-hmm. honest, if I'm being honest. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
um, so he's not there physically. He's, he's everywhere. I think the most fascinating part of how we're looking back at this experience and, and you saying that you didn't necessarily feel him there, mm-hmm. I, I just, I think it's the beauty of it, in my opinion, is that you started doing this podcast and I know it's about your journey and it's about you learning about Jung and talking to these people who, you know, in some cases had more of a firsthand experience than anyone could ever have. Mm-hmm. And that's been, it sounds like it's been fulfilling to you and it sounds like it's been connecting you with him. And then you went to the actual place where he existed and kind of found that interacting with his ideas in Chicago makes you feel more connected than going to the place where he lived. Exactly. I think that's kind of profoundly beautiful because it reinforces what you've talked about on the show about how his ideas, the things that he brought to light and the things that only he could bring to the light, um, his contribution to the craft and everything, it has impacted your life so much that sitting with the ideas is more important than sitting with, with the physical location uh, where he was. Yeah. And I think it really points to you having found the way that you want to interact with Jung in doing this podcast. This is why I would only do this with you, Sean, because (laughs) that was so beautiful. Thank you. Thank you you for pointing that out. Yeah. Yeah. And I was, I was afraid to say that, honestly, I was afraid to say that out loud and we're recording that I really didn't feel him there. Yeah. I just found that quote by Fred Gustafson that he said on episode 10, he said, if we don't have mystery, then we have that which is literal. He said, Mm. I remember Marie-Louise von Franz saying, literalism is just another form of materialism. And that just seems to fit here because I was looking for the literal Jung. Right. And and what you just said. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. at the end of the day, that wasn't what your soul was, was searching right. for. Right. Uh, yeah. I think, yeah, I think that's profound. I think, I think if you ever, if you ever feel like you went there for nothing, you can realize that that's not true because you would have never come to that truth without having actually gone there. Right. I just, last night I tweeted the quote, um, I usually quote Jungian things, but every once in a while, you know, the Madonna did a documentary. It was kind of like a reality TV show, but it was a movie called Truth or Dare. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. And she said, uh, you can't get to one place without going through another. Mm -hmm. And that came to me last night and I felt really compelled to tweet it. And Mm. um, that happened to me with moving out to the suburbs a couple years ago. I wanted a house so badly. Moved out to the suburbs four months. I lasted four months, <laughs> moved back to the city. Um, but when I first um, launched, when I launched the podcast this past summer, I said, I'm only, it was on the website, I'm only interviewing Zurich trained Jungian analysts because I thought that I wanted people that trained at the source 
And now I realize how ridiculous that was. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, it took going there and kind of knocking it off of its pedestal, I think. Yeah. I think, uh, I think everything that you've been doing is, is such a fascinating journey and it's very unique to you. And I, I really appreciate, um, I made this offer or I made this demand to, uh, interview you about your experience in Zurich because I was very curious. Uh, I'm, I'm grateful to you for allowing me to do so. And, uh, I don't know how to end this because I'm, I'm the host, but it's not my show. But uh, once again, I'm Sean Lau. This is Laura London, the guest on her own show. Um, Thanks, Laura. Thank you so much, Sean. 